I wanted to briefly respond to the remarks of the senator from Louisiana. Those of us who oppose the North American Free Trade Agreement are not trying to erect walls. We are trying to tear down the wall of repression and violation of human rights in Mexico. In the post-Cold War period, the United States of America, this administration, the Clinton administration, could have lit a candle by using trade policy to promote democracy and human rights in our closest neighbor to the South, Mexico. And that could have set the pattern for other trade agreements in Central America and South America and with country, other countries as well. But we did not do that, and that is the tragedy of this agreement. Mr. President, I would suggest that to sign a trade agreement with a country that violates the human rights of its citizens, to sign a trade agreement that is linked to labor repression, goes against the core values of what we stand for as a nation. And every time I've raised this question on the floor of the Senate, I must say there has not been a direct response to it. Mr. President, working people in our country, average working families, are not afraid to compete. But their insight and their analysis is a rigorous economic analysis because they understand that they will be in trouble and their families will be in trouble relative to wages of 59 cents an hour or a dollar an hour or $2 an hour with high productivity in Mexico because the wage earners in Mexico can't join independent unions, because governments can outlaw strikes, and because when people seek redress of grievance, they can find themselves imprisoned. Why is our silence so deafening on the floor of the Senate when it comes to these human rights questions? And Mr. President, finally, I have heard my colleagues in very good faith, some of whom I consider to be very good friends, talk about the insecurity of people in our country. And that's what this is really all about. And that was Paul Wellstone speaking on the Senate floor in late 1993 in opposition to the North American Free Trade Agreement. And that was just a couple of months before that horrendous deal became law on January 1st, 1994. And you can hear that he was criticizing Republicans and his own party's president, Bill Clinton, for pushing this horrendous so-called free trade deal. Now, each year I try to remember Paul, who 16 years ago tomorrow, in other words, on October 25th, 2002, died in a small plane crash during his re-election campaign, and he died along with his wife, his daughter, and several campaign aides. He was an amazing, great progressive. And you'll hear a bit more from Paul later in the show after we talk about the plight of taxi drivers and also dig into the tax robbery that happens at the state and local level to everyone who is not rich. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for October 24th, 2018. This podcast is brought to you, as you know, as my regular listeners know, by our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, the largest transit union in North America that fights for the interests of its 199,000 hardworking members and also promotes mass transit. 
It's also sponsored by the National Union of Healthcare Workers, a member-led movement for democracy, quality patient care, and a stronger voice in the workplace. It's also supported by many financial supporters, small financial supporters like you. And I certainly urge you to go over to workinglife.org and click on the podcast tab and look for the link to Patreon so you can become a financial sponsor of the show. Now, that shiny thing that we know as the internet and the connected concept, the so-called gig economy, well, it's shiny and exciting maybe to the billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and to the investors underwriting rideshare operations like Uber and Lyft. Now, I don't have the Uber and Lyft apps on my phone. I've only ended up in an Uber or Lyft ride a few times because someone I was with utilized it. I don't use those apps because of the way they exploit drivers. Uber and Lyft drivers are the new economy version of the exploited farm workers in the agricultural fields or the garment workers in sweatshops in the early part of the 20th century in the United States and those garment workers who now toil for slave wages in places like China and other countries. Now, I'm not faulting the Uber and Lyft drivers themselves. They are trying in this harsh economic world of fewer jobs and jobs that don't pay enough to just make a few more dollars to pay their bills. And they're often pitted and in competition against the traditional yellow cab drivers, especially in a place like New York City, where the emergence of Uber and Lyft has created a race to the bottom. And it's a race that actually has claimed since last year the lives of five drivers who took their own lives, who committed suicide, because they had reached the end of what they could tolerate. The 12 to 14 hour shifts, the bankruptcies, and the constant competition among 130,000 cars of all kinds that are jamming the streets of New York City, just trying to snatch a little morsel of the transportation pie. Now, it doesn't have to be that way, obviously. We could, as a society, demand from Uber and Lyft that they pay drivers a living wage rather than just suck every last dollar possible from people. And so to talk about that and what's happening to taxi drivers, I want to bring in two longtime friends and colleagues who are wrestling with that very idea. Bereve Desai, who is the executive director of the National Taxi Workers Alliance, and James Parrott, who has been analyzing economic issues with a focus on New York State for several decades and is currently the director of economic and fiscal policies at the Center for New York City Affairs. What struck me when I started looking into this is how many years you and I, Berevi, have been talking about taxi drivers and the way in which I remember, you know, 10 years ago at least, we were talking about a crisis that they were facing back then. And it seems to me now you add the reality of Uber and Lyft and things have become even more difficult for taxi drivers and basically people who drive cars generally. So I know that you often are trying to organize and support not just a yellow medallion taxi drivers, but also the Uber and Lyft drivers, because essentially they're all part of the tens of thousands of drivers trying to basically eke out a living. Is that a fair um, observation? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, in New York City, whether you're an Uber driver or yellow cab or a neighborhood livery driver or a corporate black car driver, you're under the same license. And we are the only city that requires that type of a professional license for, you know, app drivers. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's a race to the bottom. And, you know, it's true, Jonathan. I mean, it's, you know, taxi drivers have always, you know, had it really difficult. I mean, this has long been an exploitative industry and platform, you know, which on which Uber and Lyft have really developed their technology. You know, it's that, that business model of exploitation. Um, but, but the thing that's important for us in New York City to remember is that, you know, in 2012, we finally won a fair raise and a cap on a regulated cap on the expenses that the drivers have to pay. And it's that combination that really determines their daily income. We finally won regulations at the level that we needed them to be. And that was after a very long, like, you know, um, 12 12 year fight at that point. Um, but then these companies came in and they started flooding the streets with vehicles, lowering the rate of fare. And it's that saturation and the bottomless fares that it really led to this unprecedented race to the bottom where you just see, you know, just the, I mean, the levels of poverty. I've never seen them before among drivers and the bankruptcies and evictions and, you know, people talking about homelessness and hunger. And, and of course, um, from November, 2017, you know, to up to just about a few weeks ago, we've now seen seven driver suicides in New York city. And it's, you know, the suicides have been common everywhere that the Uber Lyft business model have followed and really disrupted what it's meant to be a professional full-time driver where, you know, you could at least put to scrape together some sort of a decent living, particularly, I think, within the frames of like the low-wage worker, you know, immigrant economy. You know, in that scale, driving was still on the higher end. And but you see such a massive destruction of it today. Mm. So now, and I want to follow up with this to your point on this. The the one thing that it seems to me to be a, a challenge, if you will, in all of this organizing and trying to change the conditions is I, I'm perhaps unusual. I don't have the Uber or Lyft app on my phone. I won't do that until they raise their standards. But Let's face it, in the same way that I think people go to Walmart um, because of low prices and, and certainly because of poverty, lots of people, customers, are adopting Uber and Lyft. And in, in some way, they're pitting the Uber and Lyft drivers against the yellow medallion drivers. All the drivers are being put, pitted against each other in, in a certain way because of the way consumers are acting. Is that a fair point? Um, I mean, certainly there's power that consumers can exercise. And, you know, you, you'll recall, I think when last time you spoke, it was, um, well, in 2017 in January, the Taxi Workers Alliance, in response to the Muslim and refugee travel ban by the Trump administration, we went out, our yellow cab members went out on strike at Kennedy Airport. And, you know, like, complete shock to us, right? This and this massive consumer solidarity movement developed where delete Uber was trending worldwide. And um, you know, you, you Uber really 
began, that was the beginning of Uber taking a massive hit. And right. I mean, it was a year that then led to the, their CEO, their founder at the time, um, actually being ousted by their board. And so there's definitely power consumers have, but I think ultimately the power in many ways lies with regulators and, you know, um, you know, legislative bodies. That's really where the failure has been in this business model. I mean, they've been allowed to operate unfettered with very little to practically no regulation at all. 40 states across the country, they're explicitly exempt from local taxi regulations. More than half the states across the country, they've been exempt from the state's um, labor, you know, labor laws. And so um, deregulation, you know, is very much um, a part of their business model. And it's what's won them all of these advantages. And that's what we've been organizing you know, to win back some level of regulation to protect the workers. So it's not just this bottomless pit of a miserable poverty that these companies have brought in. And that's a perfect segue to bring in James in the conversation. And so what do we do, James? You have us, you've looked into the actual economics of this and looked at how we could devise some sort of proposal, some sort of regulation that I assume would create essentially a minimum wage for all drivers that would set a floor, right? Right, right. So, you know, it it, it it's um, would be useful to start uh, by discussing what sort of business model is uh, used in this industry because you know uh, it's it's fairly unique. Um, first of all, the companies treat the drivers as independent contractors, not as employees. So that sort of absolves the companies of responsibility for payroll taxes, as well as adherence to, you know, a whole range of of uh, labor laws that provide, you know, some semblance of rights for workers. And secondly, this is a unique industry in that the drivers put up the capital. You know, this is an industry that that provides transportation services through uh, individual vehicles, but the cost of the vehicles is all borne by the drivers. And of course, then all of the expenses of maintaining and operating the car, all of the licensing and registration in con- in connection with being able to drive, with being able to use a car on city streets and so on, all of those costs are borne by the drivers. And the business model that the app companies have been following is one where they compete, you know, largely on being able to provide you know, very uh, responsive services to consumers. So they've been pursuing an approach where they tried to, they intentionally flood the street with as many cars as possible. The consequence, of course, of that is that the drivers uh, uh, are waiting around for a dispatch from the companies. The drivers don't have access to the passengers directly. They rely upon the companies to provide that. They can't. So, so this is an industry where they can't use their capital to earn uh, uh, an income unless the company provides them a trip. So, this is a business model that puts the company at odds with the driver, uh, and it's result. It, it, it's resulted in exactly the sort of situation that Bearvie is talking about, where where the companies have more cars on the streets, and yet the earnings for the drivers continue continues to decline. So. The way to the you know that we've we've come up with you know working very closely with the city's tax and limousine commission 
to address this is to get the companies to recognize that they have responsibility to more efficiently utilize the the time of the drivers and also to require that they that they make uh, that they pay the drivers uh, a minimum level of earnings so that they can cover their cost and get reasonably compensated for their time, recognizing that they're independent contractors. So the minimum earnings standard needs to include the employer's share of the payroll tax and so on. But but <clears throat> the, the pay standard formula that's being proposed is one that gives the companies an incentive to regulate, to control the number of cars they have on the streets uh, and not just continue to allow the number to expand without consequence. So essentially then, and let's try to do this in a short version here, um, given our time, essentially what they would have to do is pay up to a certain minimum if the driver's actual ride money that came in, either through whatever they get um, from tips and from the percentage they get from the rides, if it falls short from a minimum pay, the company would have to essentially fill up that, that gap, right? Yeah, so we're 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 not contemplating including the tips in that. The tips are entirely separate, uh, you know, as 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 we think it should be. New York State is now sort of considering, you know, uh, getting rid of the tip minimum uh, credit in the restaurant sector. So it's not going to be applied in in this sector. But but basically, there's a pay formula that says it's so much per per uh, mile to cover the expenses, so much per minute to cover the time. And that the company has to pay per trip at least that minimum formula, and if it doesn't, then it has to make up the difference. Well, just to jump in, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I think the significance here, um, like to give you an example, in 2015, we fought for a cap in New York City on the number of Uber and Lyft, you know, and other black car vehicles because that was really the beginning of the saturation. We lost that fight, right? Uber spent Uber alone spent ten million dollars in fighting the mayor, and you know it was very well publicized defeat um, for the for the mayor. But really, in the end, it was the drivers that ended up losing, um, and we paid a very heavy price for that loss. Soon after Uber won, um, they had gotten a lot of investor money, which they used to start flooding the streets with the cars. And so by the end of 2015, you had a massive oversaturation. And then by in February 2016, they announced that they would be cutting the rate of fare. So on one hand, drivers were facing more competition. And then per trip, they were making less money. So less fares and then less money on each trip that you're lucky enough to make. That was the beginning of the race to the bottom. And, you know, James's study found that 85% of Uber and Lyft and app drivers would, are earning below minimum wage. And I know there have been similar studies across the country that have also found that. And so um, it's important to understand that the oversaturation and the lack of regulation over fares, which means the companies continue to cut them, that's in the heart of that impoverishment. And so the proposal that the Taxi and Limousine Commission has on the table now coming out of, you know, James, uh, James's study would be to regulate at least the minimum rates that the companies have to pay the drivers per trip. Now, we've been campaigning for a, uh, a different model to ensure driver income, which would be that definitely to regulate the minimum rates, but also to ensure 
um, the rates be much higher than what they're currently being proposed at, and to go back to the old way that Uber used to pay drivers, which was that drivers earn 80% of whatever the passenger fare was. Uber had that model of percentage-based commission until 2017. In 2017, they started something called upfront pricing, where um, the passenger would be quoted a base rate, but the driver would be paid at a meter, you know, clocking the distance and time per trip. But those rates were much lower. So in essence, Uber took a higher percentage of the fare under upfront pricing, you know, um, you know, without us, with without kind of you know documenting that that's really what they were doing. There are all these lawsuits by drivers across the country, including by our own members, saying that it was actually a clear contract violation. Uber changed its contract to make make the practice legal, but we're now fighting for regulation that would allow drivers to get a larger share of the fare. So as the revenue grows in this industry, driver incomes don't remain static. And, you know, and you can earn at more of a prevailing wage and not just at, at a state universal minimum wage. And now what this underscores is, if you will, the dark side of the gig economy. It's always seen, especially when you come and talk about the high tech industry, it's always tried to be portrayed by certainly the industries, not by the people working in it, as this great shiny thing and isn't this great advancement. So in some way, what taxi drivers are facing is being faced by lots of gig economy workers. The things that James pointed out, they're they're not covered by safety and health laws, all sorts of labor laws and, and things that people assume they should have as just basic dignity and decency at work. So maybe in wrapping up, Mary you can talk about how one can connect this struggle for taxi worker drivers to generally trying to enforce a decent standard of life for anybody in the economy. Yeah, well, you know, in 1980, taxi drivers across this country were on the front lines as you know, there there is an economic shift where you had more, you know, independent contractorship come into the into you know being used as a as a standard business model. And drivers went from being employees under commission with employment rights, including the right to collective bargaining, you know, to becoming independent contractors overnight, where they continue to bear all of the risks um, financially, and in, including in a job that remains really risky to their life, given the, the rates of assault and homicide on this job. Um, and, and what, you know, what the gig economy has done is taken it one step further, where the one thing you still had as independent contractor taxi drivers was the you know, hope of earning a full-time living. But in the gig economy, it's the perpetual part-timeization of full-time work. It's made workers even more insecure. It's made work more, you know, um, irrelevant for people and just made it harder for people to survive. And so you're doing multiple jobs and there's more insecurity. There's, you know, less of an ability to earn higher as you gain no concept of seniority or, you know, experience in this job. It's all the luck of the draw. And so, um, 
we and, and you know the gig economy represents less than one percent of the American economy. Yet they they've used their political might to undo labor laws that are going to affect you know the masses of workers across our country. So we we need to fight it, and we fight it by organizing. You know, um, we're really proud of the work that drivers have done across the globe, really, whether it's taxi drivers or Uber drivers. And now increasingly, as in New York City, we've been doing taxi and Uber drivers organizing together in unity campaigns to say, we're not going to be pitted against each other, you know, to be forced to fight for the crumbs. You know, we, we have to fix this business model that is at the heart of the impoverishment. And workers coming together can absolutely make it happen, just as we just did in New York City. And when allies like, you know, like like James and, and other folks, like, you know, Union Movement, 32BJ in New York City, when they come together and they stand up with the workers, that change is possible. Now, Texas is on my mind for this segment. And by the way, full disclosure, I was actually born in Texas. I only lived there till I was about a year and a half. So I certainly don't pretend like I'm from Texas. And yes, it's on my mind, maybe partly inspired by the dream, the hope that the most odious senator of either party, Ted Cruz, will go down to defeat in the midterm elections in just a couple of weeks. In fact, it's Ted Cruz that is the inspiration, kind of, for this segment. In the recent debate with Beto O'Rourke, if you happen to catch it, Ted Cruz went on and on about Texas values, especially about the wonders of Texas as a low-regulation, low-tax state. Now, you've heard this nonsense from him and many others before goes something like this. Low income taxes are the path to economic nirvana, to economic health, and to a great life. That's always been the rap of the ideologues, except it's never been true. I'm not just simply talking about how society falls apart when people don't pay their fair share of the dues it takes to make things work, to have decent roads, good schools, good water facilities, and the like, it's simply that having no income tax or a very low income tax does not mean having a low tax rate, especially if you're among the poorer segments of society. It's very simple. Without a progressive income tax, the average income earner, like most of my listeners, are still hit with the burden of sales taxes and property taxes and excise taxes. You don't feel it in the same way maybe as writing a check to the IRS on April 15th, but it's there and it adds up. And it doesn't hurt the 1% who might pay sales tax on a fancy car or diamonds. Proportionately, they can handle that. But the lower income folks 
who have to go out and pay for food and gas and other necessities, they get hit in very hard ways because those sales taxes account proportionately for a much larger slice of their overall income. And that's the silent and deadly way that state and local taxes make inequality worse. To talk more about this, I want to welcome back Carl Davis, the research director for the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy, that's ITEP at itep.org, which is just out with the sixth edition of a really important piece of research that is entitled, Who Pays? Question mark a distributional analysis of the tax systems in all 50 states. Okay, so it's not a really catchy title, but that's why we have Carl. And this study really comes at a great time, especially, Carl, since I was recently listening to the debate between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke, who, as you know, are running against each other for the United States Senate. And, and I know that ITP is very avowedly and very staunchly nonpartisan. So I'm making my own um, observations about Ted Cruz as one of the most odious United States senators. But more important, he, and you've heard this from many, many, many people, politicians, mostly Republicans, but even some Democrats, um, people run around talking about how their state is has all these wonderful qualities. They're open to business because they don't have regulations. And now I'm speaking specifically about Texas and they have low taxes and therefore, oh, shouldn't people be so very, very happy about that? Because in theory, they have more money in their pocket, but that's not really telling the whole story. And this wonderful study that you folks did really looks at the if you will, the underbelly of the taxation system, and that's the state and local tax systems, which are really worsening inequality. And let's focus a little bit on Texas as, as an example. Explain what you mean and how the Texas tax system actually hurts certainly the lower 20% um, of the population. Sure. Yeah. So Texas over the years has had this mythology develop around it. Uh, that is just a low tax state across the board. Um, no matter who you are, you're, you're not going to shell out much money in taxes in Texas. And it turns out that, you know, that is certainly the case for people at the very, very high end of the income distribution. Um, Texas has the ninth lowest taxes on the very rich out of any state in the country. Um, but there are a couple of trade-offs associated with that. The first is that they have to skimp on uh, infrastructure and education and other services because they're just not getting those dollars from high-income households. And the second is that to fund the services they do have, um, they're having to rely very heavily on the poor. Um, Texas has a 13% um, effective tax rate on the poor, and that's adding up you know, what you pay in taxes on gasoline and sales tax and property tax and all the different taxes that Texas does levy. Um, and this ties Texas for sixth highest taxes in the country with Arizona uh, in terms of taxes on the poor. I mean, even in the middle of the income distribution, Texas is an exceptionally low tax. Uh, the middle-income family pays a rate pretty close to the national average in Texas. Uh, it's just that by refusing to levy a, a personal income tax or a corporate income tax or an estate tax, um, there's there's just steep regressivity in Texas's tax system. It's upside down where you're asking very high rates of the poor, 
uh, and very low rates of the rich in order to fund Texas state and local public services. And especially this comes down to when people have to go out and just buy stuff. And because um, states like Texas and actually Washington state ranks number one, where also Washington state does not have an income tax, but has a high sales tax and Texas ranks right behind it at number two. And that's in terms of being the top um, state in terms of inequality. And if you just think about it logically, it's very simple. The proportion that people pay of their actual money in their pocket uh, in terms of sales tax is much higher if you're at the bottom 20% than you are, say, at the top 1%. And those folks who are, let's say, buying luxury items, uh, they can afford to do that. Those are the very, very wealthy. But those people who are at the bottom 20% are typically paying for things like gasoline, groceries, things that they have to get in order just to survive. Yeah, a low-income family doesn't have the luxury of saving. They're not going to be setting aside any money. Pretty much every penny that comes in the door has to go back out in order or in order to survive. And so all these things that they're buying are subject to sales tax, regardless of if they can afford it or not. So there's no... Um, the, the problem with the sales tax is there's a total lack of consideration of people's ability to afford the tax. It doesn't matter if you've just been laid off um, or, or if you're if, if you're struggling in general and you, you can't afford the sales tax payment on uh, your kids' diapers, for example, you, you have to pay that anyway. Um, so there's with an income tax, by contrast, it, it's you can fine tune it exceptionally well. You can uh, offer exemptions for people with ex- extremely low incomes, people in poverty, and you can charge higher rates to people that you know for a fact can afford to pay those higher rates without making a meaningful dent in their in their uh, comfortable standard of living that they're enjoying. So the sales taxes, um, it's been shown time and time again, even the state of Texas does a study on uh, tax incidents, and it, it's reached the same conclusion that sales taxes, and, and then especially things like gasoline taxes as well, are, are regressive. They really ding the poor. And uh, you know, it's, they, a lot of folks may not notice that, of course. They're, they're not saving every receipt throughout the year and tallying up every penny they pay in sales tax. But when all is said and done, uh, most people in this country are paying more state and local uh, sales tax than they are state and local income tax. And that those those payments really add up throughout the year, and it creates a squeeze on the people that can least afford it. And as I'm looking at this chart in terms of the states that are most unequal because of what we just talked about, you find states like Texas, Florida, South Dakota, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Wyoming, uh, Louisiana, many of the states that are run by politicians and legislatures that run around, in fact, saying, oh, look, we have this great low tax state. You should come here. Uh, we're the ones that are sh- leading the way. We have these great strong economies. But the point is that th- it's really a fraud. It's it's a false sense of, I don't know about security, but it's basically putting out just lies about what it really costs and what it how it affects the lowest income folks, the bottom 20% is what you focused uh, mostly in your study, because in all those states, typically then you have high sales tax to make up for the fact that there are not um, income taxes that make sense, progressive income taxes. And just a, another point on Texas, and I, I love the the graph that you put out, the, the sidebar, where you pointed out that in Texas, before you looked at the state and local tax levies and the burden that um, requires or puts on people, 
the 1% of taxpayers earned an average income that is 124 times larger than the average income of the state's poorest 20% of residents. Then when you take into account the state and local taxes that are collected, that gap, that differential, that overwhelming advantage that higher income people have balloons up to 140 times the average after-tax income of the state's low-income residents. So what happens is that, to your point and really the title of your study, the state's local taxes, and there's some other issues, not just about the the sales taxes, there's also excise taxes and property taxes, which we'll talk about in a second, those actually make inequality worse. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the most tragic findings of this study. We have this tremendous income inequality in this country that is getting worse and it's getting an increasing attention, um, thankfully. Um, but then we have states like Texas that it's not just that Texas is refusing to address income inequality. It is actively making income inequality worse through its tax system by charging low rates to the people who's, who are very wealthy and whose incomes are growing exceptionally fast right now and charging very high rates to people that are struggling just to keep their heads above water. So you, you're driving... Um, a very wide gap between rich and poor, even wider. And there, there are a few states that make a little bit of progress on chipping away at it. Um, and I mean, to be fair, you're not going to solve income inequality through state and local tax codes alone. But at a bare minimum, we should be able to agree that these states should not be taking this problem and, and supercharging it by, by creating an even bigger gap between the haves and the have-nots. Mm-hmm. And so let's now shift for a second and talk a couple of minutes about property taxes. Now, you point out that property taxes are a regressive tax, not as bad as sales and excise taxes, but still, it's a regressive tax. And again, logically, one would understand that because someone who has, say, a multi-million dollar home likely is going to have a whole set of other assets, stocks and bonds, um, all sorts of other equity, maybe a stake in a business. So the amount that they're going to have to pay on their property tax proportionally to their wealth and or their income is smaller than what is the average homeowner, the middle class homeowner is going to be socked with and the proportion that's going to weigh on them in terms of property taxes, right? Yeah, Yeah, there's a... With the property tax, um, if it were to be a true broad-based tax on all the property that a family owns, all the you know, to put another way, all all of their wealth, all of their assets, um, then that could be a progressive tax. You can certainly create a progressive wealth tax, but that's not what the property tax is. It's, it's primarily a tax on people's homes and then on you know physical brick-and-mortar business locations. And so, the, as a share of a family's net worth or as a share of their income. Uh, a middle-income family is obviously going to have a lot bigger share of their wealth tied up in their home. And so taxing that home um, is going to be regressive relative to taxing the home of, of somebody that's extremely wealthy and their home is just a small part of their overall net worth. And there's also the issue that's often overlooked that um, a, a meaningful share of, of property tax that seems to be paid by landlords uh, ultimately is passed on to renters in the form of higher rents. This has been studied many times. And then the fact is you can't escape it. Those, those costs are going to be passed along. So just because you're, you're renting your home rather than owning um, doesn't mean that you're, you, know, you, you escape property tax-free. Those, those taxes are, are being paid as well. And just to not let 
the so-called good states get totally off the hook. When I do look at the income inequality index at the very bottom, and you studied the 50 states and the District of Columbia, the state that comes in at the very bottom of the inequality index, meaning it's a better state to live in if you're at the bottom 20%, is in fact California. But I remember when we chatted about this previously, you had some caveats about that, that even in the states that are a little bit better, there are some problems, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, in California, unfortunately, there's still a situation where, uh, you know, low income families are paying upwards of 10% of their incomes in state and local tax. Uh, whereas for middle and, and even upper middle income families, that, that percentage is closer to eight or 9%. So there, the state of California is asking more of the poor than, than of, you know, more, uh, than of middle class families. Uh, I mean, one thing that California has, has gotten right um, is it has increasingly moved towards a, uh, a quite progressive income tax structure with, uh, you know, special tax rates on millionaires, for example, that, that can very easily afford to pay that tax. And so California does ask more of its top 1% of earners than, than of uh, other groups. And, and so that is helping to narrow income inequality ever so slightly in California. But, um, you know, overall, you, you give the, what you hear about California, um, as you know, as, a, as an extremely progressive state, it doesn't really shake out that way when you look at the tax system overall. It's it's pretty flat throughout much of the income distribution, with, with a little bit of a higher rate charge at the high end. And I'm speaking here about not just the income tax, but about all those other taxes, sales and excise and property. When you add them all together, you know, California for a lot of folks looks looks like pretty close to a flat tax, which is often a, uh, you know, a a conservative preference, not a, Mm. not a progressive one. And so that's the situation that we're in. You kind of highlighted it perfectly that the, the state that is in theory best in your index, California only looks good or looks acceptable a little bit better compared to how bad states like Washington and Texas and Florida are. And it's really about where you put the, spectrum and where you put the the middle point, you've got something like California, Delaware, Vermont that do a little bit better. But you're saying that all states, whether it's a huge problem or a smaller problem, still have the fundamental problem, which is we don't have enough of a progressive income tax at the state and certainly the federal level. But since we're talking about the states right now, we'll stick with states. And that then it forces certain uh, revenue decisions, certain policy decisions that put more burden on the poorest people to carry the burden for all of society. Yeah, I mean, you know, public services have to be paid for somehow, and uh, that's why we should all care. It's not, it's not an issue of jealousy or soaking the rich or anything like that. I mean, if 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 they're not chipping in their fair share to fund public services, especially during times when their incomes are soaring. Um, that's going to necessitate either higher taxes on everyone else, which we, we see in this data very clearly, especially in states like Texas and Florida, um, or it's, it's going to require cutting back on public investments that we all you know, really care about or our infrastructure that we use to get to work and home to see our families and our education systems that where our, our children are, are learning and our public spaces and public parks and things like that. So, um, this absolutely how you structure your tax system absolutely matters, and, and I think that especially in this environment of, of widening income inequality, that needs to be front and center in lawmakers' minds as, as they decide who should be 
paying um, state and local taxes. And let me ask you this last question as we wind up. Um, when I spoke to your colleague not too long ago, Meg Wee, about the issues around uh, taxation, and we we focused a little bit on the uprisings among teachers that have been happening in many states. In fact, many of the states that are at the top of your inequality index, do you think that now that teachers and the rest of the public have realized that the cupboard is bare, that there's not money to pay teachers, there's not money to fix schools, not to mention fix roads and do the other things that we need to do in terms of infrastructure and basically provide for a decent society. Do you think people are starting to now see more increasingly that what you're pointing out, that you can't rely on state and local taxes in terms of the sales taxes to make up for essentially eviscerating the progressive taxation system. Yeah, I mean we've we've seen sales taxes just increasingly fall short over time. Um, there's a lot of very outdated. Um, I mean, aside from all the problems of fairness that we've been talking about, there's just also a long run revenue problem where a lot of these taxes are terribly designed with, with huge carve outs for um, luxury services and and uh, um, so. It, their their yield is failing to keep up with the the cost of providing education and infrastructure and other services and so the sales tax is not an exceptionally um, good cornerstone of a state and local tax system and I mean I, a little bit of a you, you mentioned the teachers movement um, one of the we've seen time and time again in the polling on taxes that the thing people are most upset about in the tax system is that they feel like wealthy people and corporations just aren't chipping in their fair share. And that actually ranks ahead of um, uh, the complaint of of people thinking they pay too much tax. Some people are upset about that, but actually, if you look at the numbers, there are more people upset about um, the the, the people that they think are, are not chipping in enough. And so the public opinion has been there for a while uh, in support of progressive taxation. Uh, it's just a matter of translating that into policy, and there's all kinds of hurdles uh, to doing that. Clearly, because there are, are you know people and businesses with a financial interest in not seeing progressive taxation realized. So um, it's not so much a matter of convincing the public at this point. It's it's a matter of seeing the public's wishes implemented into law. Yes, and it's not just the business interest alone. It's elites basically can always pay for what they want or need, meaning they can send their children to private schools. They can still um, build uh, their lavish homes. Now, of course, the roads might be falling apart that they travel on, but they seem not to care about that because they can probably fly in their private helicopters from place to place. But that's the problem is that they're Many of the elites are happy to have the infrastructure fall apart because they don't want to pay for it and they don't they can always work around it. Whereas the lower 20%, the people who just don't have options, they're reliant on it. But you're right, they, they people are angry because they think the wealthy are getting away with it and more of the burden is falling on them. And your study proves that that's true. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, charging, you know, people and very high income people in Florida. 2.3% tax rate. I mean, it's hard to argue that that, that they are paying. They're, I mean, they're clearly not paying their fair share in a state like that. In a state like Florida, they're paying uh, a middle-income family pays 8%. A low-income family pays close to 13%. I mean, there's a steep uh, uh, regressive nature there. It's steeply inequitable. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's clearly a lot of work to be done at, at the state and local level. And, and some of these states are, are going to have to get over there uh, fear of, uh, of personal income taxation, as if you know, that's the one—that's the only tax that matters. As long as we don't levy a personal income tax, where we get to be a low-tax state, 
uh, great for business and everybody should move here. Well, I mean, it turns out not having a personal income tax uh, is, is not at all a good thing for these state tax systems, which, which our study shows. Finally, as I mentioned, tomorrow is the 16th anniversary of the death of Paul Wellstone. Give a listen to his thoughts on activism and politics, which is a really useful rumination that I think is very relevant to today. Uh, For me, um, I think my interest in justice concerns is in part family, which is quite often the case. my father, the Jewish immigrant from Ukraine who fled persecution from Russia and um, really emphasized to me the importance of human rights. And my mother, Mincha Danishevsky, was a cafeteria worker. We didn't have that much money. So from her, it was sort of the whole focus on people who struggle to make ends meet and the importance of of, of trying to be there with, with uh, low and moderate income and working people. Um, that was really important. And then the second thing would, it, would be uh, being a student at the University of North Carolina exactly the right time with the explosion of the civil rights movement and, and then the anti-poverty work and then the anti-Vietnam War movement. All of that was my, if you will, baptism to, uh, to uh, grassroots activism and, and, to, and to grassroots leadership. And then finally, before I became a United States Senator, it was 20 years in Minnesota of teaching and community organizing. I did a lot of community organizing. And through the community organizing work, I have seen the capacity of regular people, ordinary citizens, which I mean in a positive way, to be their own leaders. To me, the, 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 the change in our country comes from the grassroots, and the most important thing is that people become their own leaders, speak for themselves, advocate for themselves. I think that's the best of leadership development. First of all, the way in which we make the change, the way in which we have more opportunities for people, more justice in our country, the ways in which we get to the point where uh, no, no citizen ever views himself or herself as a victim, but rather as men and women with rights who live a life with dignity. The way in which we get to a country where every child feels as if they're a treasure and parents have hope and we have hope and we have vision and we have learning uh, and we have dignity, that's how we win. That's how we win. I think the key to that is a citizen politics that can beat a big money politics. The key to that is to have people who are engaged in public affairs, who are engaged in the political process, and who are willing to become the new community leaders, the new leaders in our country. And that's, that's grassroots leadership development. That has to come from the grassroots. The mode of change, the mode of power for change in our country, I'm a United States senator, but is not going to come within the United States Senate or, the, or within the House of Representatives. It's not going to come within Washington. The motive power for the change is going to be the external pressure. It's going to come from the grassroots. And the way that happens is when we build leaders. But most of my politics, honest to goodness, I think comes from people who should be famous, but hardly anyone in the country knows their name. People that I've just met you know, in different communities that I've lived in or worked in who have just done 
unbelievably good work, who have made all the difference in the world, who are very inspiring, and who, in the, in, in the words of James Agee, should be famous. They should be famous. So in a way, I think the biggest models I have are community people, neighborhood people, uh, citizens who, who I think are the real patriots because they take time out of their lives and they give it to their communities, they give it to our country, they give it to making a better world. That's what I most believe in. My vision of a just society is where um, every, uh, starting with small children, um, but it can also be adults where every person, every boy, every girl, uh, every man, every woman, um, every senior citizen um, from really birth to end of life, that, that really everybody has the same chance to reach their full potential. To me, that's the most important thing, regardless of, of uh, color of skin or boy or girl or rich or poor or urban or rural or suburban, um, that every person, every little small child should have the same chance to, to reach their full potential. To me, that's the American dream. That's the goodness of our country. But we have still a fairly long ways to go uh, for our country to really live up to that promise. If we're going to have the kind of change in our country that'll make the United States of America a better America, I guarantee you it's going to be the result of much more grassroots politics, much more grassroots leadership development, much more of a voice from people from the neighborhoods and the community. To me, the definition of community is we all do better when we all do better. Whatever happened to community? I think we need, a, I think we need to get our values out there. I think we have to have an exciting, bold agenda out there. And then I think we need to do a better job of doing the grassroots organizing and building our leadership. That's the way we're going to make the change in the country. for our Robert Barron of the Week, and he is Bob Hugan, the former chief executive of Celgene, which is a leading poster child of Big Pharma. And this choice this week is in keeping with the attention on the upcoming elections less than two weeks away. Hugan is running as the Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate seat in New Jersey that is currently held by Bob Menendez. So why is Bob Hugan the Robert Barron of the Week. Well, first of all, like all executives at Big Pharma, they have juiced up the prices and jacked up the prices on really important drugs. For example, Celgene's banner cancer drug, which is called Revlimide, costs nearly twice as much today as it did in 2010. And that's simply the result of price gouging on the part of this company. And just as important, just as Hugan was retiring, the company paid $280 million to settle charges that it defrauded Medicare to boost profits for its two main drugs. And one of those drugs included thalamide, which was Celgene's brand name for thalidomide, a drug that had become notorious in the 1960s 
because it was found to cause thousands of birth defects worldwide. Essentially, and the reason it had to pay a $280 million fine to settle these charges is that it aggressively marketed the cancer drugs, thelamide and revlimide for unapproved uses. Essentially, they committed a big fraud. Now, how this scammer is even in shouting distance in this race is more about the, well, I guess there's no other way of putting it, the less than stellar reputation of Menendez. But big pharma executives who have orchestrated frauds on the public and jacked up prices to sky high rates that people can't afford, they should be in jail, not running for the U.S. Senate. And that's why Bob Hugan is the robber baron of the week. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Bereve Desai and James Parrott, who are talking to us about the plight of taxi workers and Carl Davis of the Institute for Taxation Economic Policy. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, and to our other sponsor, the National Union of Healthcare Workers. Of course, we welcome other people to subscribe and support. Small financial supporters are the backbone of the show. Go over to workinglife.org, click on the podcast tab, look for Patreon, and join up and become a financial sponsor at whatever level you can afford. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week.